been a, a narrative around psychological safe workplaces. It means it's cozy and comfortable. It means the leader needs to do everything. You know, it's the leader's fault or not as to whether that exists, etc. And that it's big investment of time and money, etc. It's shifting in the right direction. My perspective, none of that is true. It's about creating new and different dialogue, more open dialogue, just shifting in mindset and behaviours. And I think everybody needs to take accountability for that. Psychological Safety at Work, a season of podcasts from Talking Leaders. Hello, and welcome to the Talking Leaders podcast. I'm Paul Gisby. This episode, part of our season on psychological safety at work, features a conversation I had with Claire Hamlin and Sheila Fitzsimons of Q5 Consulting who specialise in the field of organisational health. Claire Hamlin has a strong background in consulting with a particular focus on organisational design and change. Claire worked at Accenture, BP, she's run her own consulting company before she joined Q5, where she's currently Head of Futurology. Sheila spent a large part of her career in the media industry, working for a number of years for a well-known UK-based media company before she joined Q5, where she is Director for Public Sector. Sheila has extensive experience in leading transformation projects for Q5 in a variety of business areas. Now, I chose this conversation to kick off the season because, as you'll hear, both Claire and Sheila are well-informed advocates for the importance and benefits of psychological safety in organisations and have a clear view of where things are at the moment. I opened the discussion asking if they could tell us what psychological safety means to them. First Claire, and then Sheila. I think if you Google what psychological safety, there's various responses, which is kind of around essentially the belief that you won't be punished or humiliated for speaking up, for having ideas, you know, for having any concerns or, or admitting mistakes. And I think when we think about what does that mean in the context of um, organizations and, and particularly teams and organizations because I think psychological safety is a team construct you're not psychologically safe or unsafe on your own it's it's when you're with others it's really um, environments that uh, encourage candid feedback um, allow people to be open about admitting mistakes and really kind of enable that learning from one another and I think that's why it's uh, something that's sought after in organizations or should be Mm. Anything you want to build on there, Sheila? I mean, I think you sometimes see it, I think, shorthanded into some of those expressions about, you know, being your true self, you know, that that the space to sort of um, show your the full range of your your skills and capabilities and personality and whatever particular um, aspects of your life that you want to bring to work. And uh, as Claire said, I think it is the thing about being in a place where you're happy to ask for help and making mistakes is seen as a sort of learning opportunity rather than a, a, a sort of a moment where people get sort of told off. Mm. Now, given the way you've described it there, I mean, it's almost as though, well, surely everybody just personally and morally would 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 want this to be the case at, the, at their workplace uh, and, and leaders also. But I mean, if you're going to shift your organisation to a safer place, I mean, there's, let's face it, there's some cost involved, isn't there? Because you could have to take staff off other duties or that kind of thing. And I suppose that's what I'm getting at is as a leader, you quite often got to find the business justification for any 
kind of cost. Claire, do you want to build on that and, and make the case for why it's absolutely essential that, that leaders follow this? No, absolutely. And I might challenge you on, on the cost factor as well. But anyway, um, I think how we've been thinking about designing and running organisations works against lots of the component factors that kind of make up psychologically safe work environments. You know, leaders have been asked and tasked to run organisations in a way that's efficient, in that manages down risk, and that drives maximum value for shareholders. So there hasn't been the attention paid to things like well-being, to enabling everybody to be themselves, to sort of tap into intrinsic motivations, etc. Because when you're designing something to be very efficient and lean, you're treating it in a very mechanistic, not, not human way. And I think that has started to surface as a real challenge for organisations, particularly over the last couple of years, where we have seen record levels of stress and burnout. Um, Organisations have had to pivot at a pace that's been unprecedented. And we know that the future that we're looking into is is even more uncertain with ever more challenges that are going to really test the resilience and agility of organisations. So what we need to do is help organisations shift from the very mechanistic, controlling kind of way of being run to one that is much more about embracing individuality, um, encouraging well-being and learning and continuous adaption. And psychological safety really provides a foundation for all that. If you're operating within a psychologically safe environment, there is trust, there's higher levels of resilience, there are high levels of motivation, you are getting that innovation, etc., which are all the attributes we know we need in order to survive the next decade. And I think a lot of what helps build psychological safety boils down to daily, daily behaviours and shifts and changes in daily behaviours that leaders can demonstrate with their teams, small activities that create a space for different types of conversations and reflections and we can kind of come on to some of that so I don't think it's a big cost investment but I do think there's a need to shift mindset and behavior of what the role of the leader is from being one that controls things and that drives out maximum output and manages down risk Mm. to one that kind of connects fosters encourages collaboration conversation divergent views all in a sort of safe environment. Mm. And that requires stepping away from some of the control that leaders have been used to, which is can be scary for them. Mm. And I suppose the thing is that from, from the perspective of a leader, they might not always realise that they actually benefit the most from a concept of psychologically psychological safety, because often they are psychologically the most safe. You know, they can say what they feel or put out ideas or suggest things or say what they want to say. So I suppose it, you know, it's a bit of them trying to think, well, what are the benefits that I get from doing this and how would I share those benefits with my team rather than thinking I have these freedoms but the other people in the organisation don't. Yeah. One of the strongest um, evidence-based arguments, actually, and, and some people may be familiar with Google's Aristotle project and experiment, but, you know, they, Google set out to look at what made the perfect team, the best performing perfect team. And, you know, looked at all different facts of that, including, you know, the diversity of expertise you might put together in the team and bringing together some of your highest potential people, etc. 
And actually, when they looked at a vast amount of data around this, psychological safety was the fundamental thing that differentiated teams that performed well versus mm. those that didn't. Mm. Um, so, you know, to Sheila's point in terms of, you know, where organisations that get this right, they do get that performance and that efficiency and that innovation and that, you know, step change improvement. But, but it's driving after it in a very different way. Um, than the way that we've been running businesses for the last 30 or 40 years, which, you know, is a, is a big mindset shift. Right. And, and, that, and this brings me on to a question that fascinates me. I mean, although we've been running businesses in those ways for, for probably even longer than that, uh, the, the concept of feeling unsafe at work isn't new. It probably wasn't called uh, psychological safety before that that, uh, that, that that phrase was coined. But um now it's risen to the fore. It's suddenly it's being spoken about and people are, are calling it out. I mean, why do you think that that's, that's happened? And I'll, I'll go on to say, and how do you think you counter the fact that, that because it's now become a topic of popular conversation, how do you avoid it being a fad that's just going to be this year's focus and then, you know, something else will come in later on? I mean, I think one of the reasons why it's it's, um, come to, to prominence. I mean, obviously, we've always had health and safety legislation, but it's been very much around physical health and safety. Um, so I think as people are more aware and more open about their mental health, I think the kind of the focus has, has moved from what, you know, how organisations think about health and safety to just thinking about physical to thinking about mental safety as well. Um, I also I also think that the move to digital has been, a, a, has been quite a, an important part of this because the whole sort of, um, you know, agile methodology, what, you know, whatever you might think about it, sort of, you know, hardwires this idea of people working together, people making mistakes, you know, the whole sort of fail fast, fail quickly, test things in the open, share what you're learning, you know, test and learn, test and learn. And I think as more organisations have teams that are doing those sorts of things, I think those concepts are becoming more prominent. And actually those teams work if people feel confident about speaking up. So there's a sort of a, there's like a working methodology and then this focus on mental health, which I think are often coming together in 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 some organisations, and I don't I don't see how this one gets pushed back into the box because in fact, the more that people discover it, the more they're talking about it, the more we hear about it happening. Whether it's on, I think, um, I think it's Andy McDowell was just saying about how she was on a film set recently and realised everybody on the film set was male and that she was kind of didn't feel particularly safe and so left the set or the sort of hazing in football, in cricket teams that used to be completely normal. It isn't anymore because people are talking about it. And I just think these examples of unsafe environments, psychologically unsafe environments, are being discussed so openly now mm. that I just don't think that the kind of the future generations are going to accept some of the unsafe practices that happened in the past. Well, you've actually put your finger on 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 something I wanted to touch on. The next question: I mean, is there a generational element to this? Is it, is it a case of the um, you know newer generations coming into the workplace are are recognizing this and for the first time calling it out? I mean, I remember when I was in my twenties, situations which would now be described as psychologically unsafe, but we all had them. We mm. all complained about them, and some people suffered very badly, and and others we just we just 
bore it out. But we didn't call it out. And if you did, it, we were sort of told to toughen up a bit. Whereas that's well, not is- happening now, is it? I think there is this real problem. I mean, definitely in the media industry, there is this sort of idea that unless it's tough, you're not going to get, you know, great, great work. And I think that that, um, you know, that, that, that those ideas of fading, I think, you know, as, as for example, more women rise to the top, there is a change and there is definitely a change in style. There's definitely a change in style in lots of media organisation and actually a belief that you actually, people produce their best work, not when they're sort of under pressure and being bullied, but actually when there is a collaborative environment where people can sort of speak openly. Mm, mm. I think we do need to as well challenge this idea that um, psychologically safe workplaces are comfy, cosy Indulgent. places to be. Um, you know, there is a difference between a challenging environment, which you would absolutely see, you know, alongside the sort of psychological safety versus an environment that has a, a destructive culture, a culture of blame, a you know, toxic culture. Um, you know, what we when we look and think and talk about psychological safety is absolutely that environment where there is a lot of challenge, but it's challenge that's done from a place of positive intent, that's done constructively, and that's done without judgment. And I think that's the difference. And and to your point, Paul, on the um, generational aspect, I do think there's um, a a lower tolerance for poor culture in organisations. And, you know, we have the war for talent is a term that's been banded around for years. But, you know, by God, everybody really feeling that right now. And I think it was on the news this morning that there's now more jobs in the UK than people unemployed for the first time since records began. And every client, every industry I'm speaking to has got massive talent gaps. So mm. in, a, in a world where as the, the, you know, the up and coming next generation workforce, you have a choice about where you work, then culture is a massive influence in, in that. And why would you go somewhere where you felt like your views weren't valued or you couldn't speak up or... Mm that you are challenged in an unhelpful and destructive way when you could be somewhere where you're listened to, where your values are inputted, where you have a great, you know, um, supportive but challenging work environment with your colleagues. Um, I mean, what we're hoping, isn't it, is that by developing psychological safety, it's not that you're indulging people, is <laughs> actually that you're building strength and resilience and that therefore they're less likely to, to burn out or Absolutely. less likely to leave because um, they're unhappy in, in, in where they work. So this sort of idea that it somehow is sort of pandering to people, I think is a, is a really, you know, uh, it, it, it's the view of somebody who I think feels quite safe in their position and doesn't really want to share that with anybody else. Right. Okay. Okay, yeah, I think yeah, I, I, I recognise that, and I can think of some people that uh, would definitely be in that in that space. It's not broken, so why bother fixing mm-hmm. it? Type of thing. But all right, let's imagine then we've got this 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 hypothetical leader who uh, we've we, we've started to to convince. I mean, how would you go about advising them? What should they do to then start to? I suppose in the first place, even check levels of psychological safety, and then go about. Um, uh, fostering it I think there are some really simple things leaders can do um, in this area and the, back to my point of challenge you on the cost of this I don't think this is about a big investment for organizations it's just leaders doing a few things a little bit differently um, 
Absolutely. The first, you know, psychological safety is a team construct. So ask the team. And there are some great resources out there, free, you know, 10-point checklists, etc., that you can run as a little survey within your team to explore because there are different dimensions of psychological safety. It's not necessarily that you're entirely safe or unsafe um, all around, you know, one, one component part of it. The team might be really great, for example, at feedback, but really poor at learning from mistakes. So creating the space to ask for the team to sort of diagnose themselves a little bit and, and co-create some solutions and ideas. And your role of leader is just to facilitate that conversation. You don't need to have all the answers. I think one of the big misused or underused tools in business are things like after action reviews. So again, if you've done a project, because this is about encouraging people to learn from what, what went wrong or what could have gone better, but in a constructive and a non-judgmental way, really simple tool, you know, end of a project or end of any kind of point change in, in what's happening, ask everybody to give give the, the output or the outcome of the score from one to 10, and then you facilitate a conversation around that. Right, we've given it a seven or an eight. That's great, what went well? Why was it seven or eight? What would have made it a 10? What could we have done differently? So you collectively review your impact and your progress as a team. Again, it's not judgmental, but it fosters and it creates that environment where people can speak up, they can say what, you know, what they may have been afraid to say during the project or what they may have been afraid to challenge. And you start introducing some of those little tools as a leader into how you work and run with your team, it starts to move the dial on this. And of course, you know, the age old thing with leader, you need to role model. You need to demonstrate those behaviors around admitting your mistakes, showing vulnerability, you know, asking questions, asking for help where you need it. And you could do all of the things that I've just mentioned. And then if the first time somebody in your team makes a mistake, you ball them out of the room or you react in a deeply inappropriate way, you will undermine and set back your progress on this by a long way. So mm. you have to kind of keep in mind that the sort of positive to negative ratio has to be very, very high on the positive side to kind of keep moving the dial because you, it doesn't take much to really undermine this. Um, so it's all about your, your emotional intelligence, your management of your behaviours and your emotion in, mm. in the heat of the moment as well. I was smiling there when you said about uh, about the project follow-up. Um, I used to work in the pharmaceutical industry, and uh, that's very project-based. And one of the things that you always did at the end of the project was you ran a post-mortem session, as, they, as, as we called them. Uh, now, thinking back, they were largely about uh, more process things, what went right, what went wrong, things that happened in, in, in the project. I don't remember there being very much, if anything, about behaviours. Or so forth, but you could you could introduce it. But the 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 thing that came to my mind is I remember one project leader uh, saying that uh, they'd just done a, a post mortem, and and then he he was sort of a bit cynical about it. And I said, "Well, what's your problem?" He said, "I don't ever remember any project starting by looking at the post mortem of previous projects to take it forward. So you did it, but then you you know did you actually act upon it? So I think that's a that's a key thing you've got to do. Is it's not just it's it's great to have the conversation, but what are you going to do with it? You must do something with it because, as you say, you could you could flush out some really great stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think that I think the um, whatever you do, it's really important that you do something with it, and it's also important that you interpret it. 
properly. So there's an organisation I'm working with who are very sort of pleased with their people survey and the fact that they run it and then they have regular pulse surveys. But actually, if you look at the trend of people actually completing them, it's slowly for, slowly but surely falling. And when you ask the question, is that sort of you know survey fatigue or is it a sign of something else going on? They don't. They don't have an answer. So I think you've got to make sure that you're, you know, you're doing little focus groups or checking because I think people can rely a little bit too heavily on, on surveys and data if you're not careful. I I remember a, a senior leader coming in. She took over the organisation. She talked about how she was going to listen and all this kind of stuff, and she became aware that there was a lot of, in effect, eye rolling going on. And and so uh, she called out and said, "What's wrong?" And it was a Swedish audience. So they were much more inclined to say what they think, which was was very refreshing. And someone said, how many times have we heard this? And how many times have we been listened to? So, yeah, absolutely. Collect the data, but then but then act act upon it. Um, but th- this thing, though, uh, getting more specific, uh, you talked earlier about the, you know, a leader might think, well, I, I, I feel psychologically safe, and when I'm in meetings and I'm talking with my diet reports, it all seems seems fine. Um, but of course, you know they're only seeing it from their perspective. Is there any sort of objective measures that you can you can take to sort of you know take the temperature of your organisation and see well actually how psychologically safe is it? I think there are various things that you can do from kind of more structured formal things looking, scanning across the organisations in, you know, individual team activities. I think, you know, I'd be wary for any leader who was making the assumption that psychological safety existed or didn't exist. I think that they do need to ask and, you know, having those check-ins with your teams is really important. I think, you know, we've talked about employee engagement surveys. There are there will be data points on there that point to this. You know, often a lot of those surveys have the kind of questions around, you know, I, I feel like, do I feel like my opinion is valued? Do I know what my role is? Can I ask questions? You know, they, they'll have some of those sorts of questions in them or you can modify them to include that sort of thing, which gives you more of an organisation-wide scan. But as we've just talked about, there are, um, so you know, there are issues with surveys in terms of completion levels or whether people are, are feel able to be honest in their responses, etc. And then I think there are some of the indirect measures, and you can look at your your attrition and exit interview data. You can look at well-being data. You know, if you've got high levels of stress or, or work, you know, absences, etc. In certain parts of the organisation, that's a bit of a a red flag obviously um as to, to what's going on and what's driving that so i think it's i don't think there's any silver bullet on this that kind of says actually if you go and look at that that's going to tell you all the answers it's having a number of touch points by which you're making this front of mind for the organization and consciously always working on it right but is a leader uh, our leaders going to get the best insight to 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 what the the, the sort of environment is by doing this themselves or are they actually going to get a more honest you said there about people filling out surveys honestly a, an honest and true picture by getting somebody to do it for them if somebody independent i my personal view is if the leader wants an honest opinion they need to create the space for that conversation with their teams mm. and i think if, if you feel like you have to get an external in to go ask your team the question you that's your answer. 
you don't have psychological safety. You know, if, if, you, if people can't have an honest conversation about, you know, some of the aspects that this touches on about, you know, can do we learn from our mistakes? Do we, uh, do we give open feedback? Can I ask questions? Can I admit when I get things wrong? If people can't have a conversation around that, in a, you know, and there are ways in which to have that conversation that make it easier for people to get into it. And again, there are lots of toolkits out there that are freely available that leaders can access to support how you facilitate some of these conversations. Mm. But if you're having to bring somebody from the outside in to figure this out, my opinion is that that's your answer. You don't have psychological safety. Yeah, but that's that's what's worrying me a bit. And when I think back to to some of the more egregious examples that I could cite, um, but I won't because of libel risks, um, they would be people who would be in complete denial about this and say, all right, well, I'll go and ask my people. I don't need anyone else because I'm pretty sure it's fine anyway. And the point being, no one would ever give them a straight answer. I mean, the the, the process of being asked those questions wouldn't be a psychologically safe uh, space. I, I don't know, maybe they're the, just the dinosaurs that we have to wait for to die out before. Uh, yeah. we and often um, employee engagement. So, you know, if, if HR are concerned, there are parts of the business where that's yeah. happening, then that's kind of, you know, lots of employee engagement surveys are set up in a very anonymous way and that protect individual um inputs and submissions so that's kind of one of the reasons or indeed increasingly um organizations have kind of whistleblowing and um you know mechanisms like that that allow people to you know in a safe way reach out where they see there's a real issue yeah yeah now you've already you've already touched on some some specific examples but but i always find the best podcasts are the ones that have stories have you got any examples that you could share that you think illustrate the whole point we're talking about, where good psychological safety um, reaps benefits, or maybe even situations that have been uncovered where problems have clearly been uh, arising because of poor psychological safety? Uh, I was hesitating because actually one of the best examples is is from my own organisation, which I think is never never necessarily the best thing to say we get it all right because we, we by no means do but um i do remember so we we set up a um weekly webinar for our for the whole company that we ran through the pandemic which was really a way of just having space for everybody to touch base and we would share what was going on or you know some case studies of interesting projects etc um and over time, and it, you know, we didn't do this from the outset, but over time we realized actually we needed to get into a bit more of a deeper conversation with people because we were experiencing burnout and people, you know, with record levels of stress and really facing ab- absences due to, to mental well-being that, that we haven't really experienced at any level before as an organization. And one of the, the partners in our team, <clears throat> um, kind of took the lead on on this at, at one of the meetings and in a very authentic way basically shared some of the, the mental health challenges he'd personally been experiencing due to both kind of personal and family as well as work situation and was really open in his experience, the impact it had on his work, the impact it had on his confidence and then how he'd been able to reach out to members in the team to help with that. 
Um, and then thereafter that survey, we, we then started running a little bit of a regular polling thing, just, you know, a little smiley scale with people ha feeling happy or distressed. Um, and we did that with some level of frequency. But I think that story that that, that senior person in our organisation told right from the outset just gave permission for everybody to contribute in a more open way. And when we did the little happy, sad face poll, you know, we didn't delve into any individual responses there, but it allowed us to give, take a little bit of a pulse check and get us into a conversation about how are people doing, what do they need? And then we made, you know, some other support interventions on the back of that. And, you know, through time, we learned and gradually built you know, became more resilient as an organisation. We didn't at all do that at the start and, you know, in hindsight probably should have, but it was a learning curve for us as an organisation, but it was all triggered by that humility, that authenticity and that trust that that, that senior leader showed in, in sharing so personally what they were going through. I mean, I think the um, the thing that comes to mind for me is the how difficult this is to do in, in very large organisations and actually that... You know, we we benefit from working for a relatively, you know, small to medium size where you know most of the people. Um, I'm not sure we have any evidence that, you know, large multinational companies really, the gap between the leadership and the local workforce is probably, um, is, is, we know is incredibly large. And I think um, although this idea is probably taken hold in certain professions and in certain areas, we know that it hasn't. Um, taken place everywhere and unfortunately we know lots of examples whether it's from the army or from the health service where you hear people talking about junior members of staff feeling unconfident about speaking up when things are going wrong because of sort of hierarchical reasons and actually almost allowing you know failures to continue because it's so unsafe for them to talk so I suppose I think for me that the challenge is how do we how do we get sort of bigger organizations to take this seriously and for it to benefit the most junior members of staff because at the moment it feels like there's a sort of a trickle down from the top to the middle but i'm not sure yet whether it's taken you know moved from say the middle to the bottom of organizations mm. yeah and i mean you know we won't, we won't touch on them here but i mean there are some horrifying examples aren't there where psychological safety was a major factor in in really quite bad outcomes I mean, yeah just some of the black box investigate investigations for for um uh, air crashes are, are illustrative of that and then some of the stuff that has been coming out over the over recent years from the health service about the environment created that's that's led to to um you know really quite serious problems and even deaths and i suppose that's what we have to think about is how do you develop toolkits that will work in large organizations who are making fast you know fast moving making you know literally life and death decisions yeah um, well thank yeah. you for raising that because actually that's what i wanted to to cover i mean we've talked so far probably fairly general terms about the things that, that we can do but i mean certainly my experience is that uh in this kind of situation if leaders want to actually make some some progress and get started it's always useful to provide some very specific baby steps um, and then some some guidance as to things they could do. I mean, where can people find out and get help on, on okay, what, what 
exactly should I do? I mean, I can go to my team next week and, and just have a general conversation, but how can I, how can I do more? Where can people get help and guidance? There's a really good website set up by a guy called Tom Garrity, who uh, has done a lot of work with agile um, ops teams and um, development, you know, the sort of software development side of things, which uh, are a sector that has really embraced some of the concepts here. And there's loads of really useful resources on his website. There's obviously the, the, the Bible on this, which is Amy Edmondson's book, The Fearless Organization, which is, which is definitely worth a read. Um, and, you know, I, I, it doesn't take very much research. It, it is such a big topic at the moment that there's, you know, there's almost more content than you know what to do with on this. But I think, um, you know, some really simple kind of baby steps for leaders. And actually, you know, to Sheila's point in terms of how do we do this in big organisations, we've worked with some of our clients and one in particular, a large global bank, on creating a simple toolkit for team leads to do some of these exercises and activities with their teams where the team lead just, you know, helps facilitate a conversation or a series of questions with their teams in a very simple, non-threatening way. Um, and that's a, a lot of the way in which larger organisations are, are trying to tackle this is very much um, equipping, building not just the competence of line managers in this space, but also their confidence, you know, that they're, their role is facilitator. It's not to provide the answers. It's just to, to create the, the opportunity for the conversation. Um, but that kind of, those simple tools, like things like I mentioned, you know, on Tom Geraghty's website, there's a 10-point checklist to run as a team to do a quick diagnostic on what are we good at, what could we improve at. The, the smiley face poll, how are we today? Happy, happy, sad, right? So if you, you know, particularly in the UK, if you ask everybody, How's everyone on you know, Monday morning? You get the you know unanimous. I'm fine, thank you. Um, doing it in a bit more of a structured way, you know, gives gives you some data that you can start to then you know. So most people are somewhere in the middle. Why is that type of thing? Or you know, you can kind of open up those conversations. The after action re re reviews, as I mentioned, they are really really simple tools that just start creating different types of conversations within the team, mm. all of which helps. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, I, one would assume in uh, lots of the larger organisations, there will be coaches and people available in your HR function who have some knowledge or expertise on this. So I think it's, it's reaching out and asking mm. for some help and, <laughs> you know, start as you mean to go on. And I, th I think, I think if, you're, if you are, a, a, you know, a senior leader, I do think sort of looking at some of your... Um, governance arrangements you know I think we've probably got very good governance in most organizations around physical health and safety or financial stability or whatever um, and I think this just needs to be added to that mix of things that are being reviewed and audited and discussed at the highest level because if it's not discussed at the sort of around the board table it's I think it's unlikely to be happening sort of on, on the shop floor so to speak. If you look at kind of what might be driving more of a focus on this in organizations there's an increasing um there's an increasing kind of intent from regulators and different frameworks that you know guide investment decisions etc around actually looking at workforce culture um the fca actually came out with a statement um a little while ago to all of their sort of members saying 
you know, we strongly encourage you to look at psychological safety and how you're building this because we are running global banks on the basis of trust from people's kitchen tables at the you know, sort of mid-pandemic. But there's a sort of strong sentiment around as we become more virtual and distributed. Investors, regulators have to have that confidence that the company is being run well and that people will speak out where they see problems. And so, you know, I mm. think this needs to get folded into to the governance and measurement of organisations, as, as Sheila mentioned. Mm. Well, we've been talking a lot about about leaders and what leaders can do. Any thoughts on on things that individuals can do? If you're in, if you're in an environment and you think you're finding well, it's not it's not a psychologically safe uh, space. What would you advise people to do? I mean, I suppose I mean you know if it, if it's if it is seriously unsafe, then I think you take the steps that that we were talking about, whether it's you know through the sort of normal management lines or through a whistleblowing. But I mean, I think if you think it's careless rather than unsafe I think you probably start with your own team I think you know that that sort of that idea of a sort of you know sort of a temperature check with your team um you know try and sort of create that idea of sort of a show and tell so that you're regularly explain telling the rest of the organization what you're doing and maybe you know in the hope that they sort of might sort of pick up on some of the things that you're doing Mm. But there's a there's a there's a significant daily uh, hurdle to get over there, isn't there? In that, if you do speak up, um, you you will get pushed back with the B word. Oh, it's just banter. And that's that's and that's really hard to you know, to, particularly if you're in the minority. Oh, I th- oh, I mean, I th- and I th- and as I said, I think if you if you look at whether it's you know the House of Commons, you know cricket teams you know the, the the media I mean it's that that sort of is everywhere but I do think people I think I do think younger people are feeling much more empowered now to you know to to pick that up and go that's it's not acceptable anymore and um and I think you know as an individual you sort of have to look you have to look for your allies don't you I mean it's it's unfortunate that you do but you you can soon sort of tell who whose eyes are rolling with you or against the other person or whatever. So I think you have to find your other people and sort of help help each other. But it's um, it is it is it is deeply unpleasant when people sort of have to put up with that sort of comment all the time. Mm. There's a lot of I mean I would hope you know the, there's a lot of focus at the moment on things like microaggressions and um, and actually a lot of help and support out there in, in terms of how to how to deal with that. What I would hope um, in a lot of teams and a lot of organisations is, it, is it's not overt sort of aggression or, you know, things like racism, et cetera, that are existing that are causing some of the challenges people are facing. It's just, there's just not necessarily an environment where people openly share or openly feedback. Everyone's very busy and task focused and, and that's, the kind of core intent and I think where it's the situation where it's not a sort of problem that's to be fixed it's just an absence of of a way of working or activity often a simple place to start is asking people for feedback because there's a part of a psychologically safe work environment is is a place where open feedback flows more more freely and feedback's often something that none of us really like giving if we're honest um, and 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 particularly where it's not being solicited but actually, when you ask people for feedback, you suddenly create a much more open, easy dialogue. 
And I think if you can just start, and if you start doing that, people then may say, well, you know, I, that was really, you know, thanks for asking. And actually, I'd love your feedback on how that last presentation went or, or blah, blah, blah. And you just start to just gently create a different kind of conversation. And I think that's the kind of active, you know, as Sheila said, where it's kind of more serious stuff, that the hope is that there are channels within the organisation that you could reach out to for help, whether that's through whistleblowing or HR, etc. I think where it's just an absence of focus on this, then you can start to role model some of that yourself as an individual and it will catch on. Mm. But pretty much all the things that you've you've said and, and have been suggested are going to do, require a degree of courage, aren't they? Someone's going to actually say, okay, I'm going to do this. And... Uh, and, and uh, you know, as you say, build resilience. Um, but it's worth it, I, I hope, because of the the, uh, the payback. All right, well, we're running running out of time. Thank you so much for, for everything. Let me just give the floor to you both. Um, what would you like to leave people with today? Um, I, I suppose I'd like to leave people with, with confidence that actually this issue is, I mean, you know, if the worst thing that we can say is that people are constantly talking about this now and is it a fad, well, then thank goodness people are constantly talking about it because, you know, my, you know, how things have changed. So I sort of feel quite optimistic about this area because I think there was there was a lot to be done and actually you in- increasingly hear people talking about it and that's got to be good. Right. Well, go back to my previous comment. If there ever was a time to be courageous, this was it then, I suppose, because yeah. it's going in your, in, in your favour. Claire? I think I'd like to kind of just... Uh, debunk some of the myths around this um, because I think we can get into a place where you know there's been a a bit of a a narrative around psychological safe workplaces means it's cozy and comfortable it means the leader needs to do everything and take all you know it's the leader's fault or not as to whether that exists etc and that it's you know big investment of time and money etc to shift in the right in the right direction and I think you know, from my perspective, none of that is true. I think it's it's about simple creating new and different dialogue, more open dialogue, just shifting in mindset and behaviours. And I think everybody needs to take accountability for that. Um, you know, you're part of a team and your your behaviours in that team will influence the culture that exists in that team. So let's not lay this all at the line manager's foot. Um, you know, I think we're, we're all grown-ups and we have to take accountability for our behaviours and we all want to work in in an environment that's more productive, that's more open, that's fun, that's challenging, etc. and where we can be ourselves. So let's all take, you know, if everybody in every organisation that's listening to this podcast decides to do one new thing next week that's going to improve the psychological safety in their teams and we, we have that right across the UK or our home farm wide that goes, that's moved the dial a little way. So let's do it. Absolutely. Okay, thank you so much for that. And thank you so much, Claire Hamlin and Sheila Fitzsimons for your time today. It's been a really fascinating conversation. And certainly I've found some useful things and I hope uh, our listeners have too. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you very much too. A big thank you to Claire and Sheila for kick-starting the season with such optimism. The increased attention psychological safety is getting is not because focusing on it is a fad, it's because the demand and drive to improve it is gaining momentum. And are you up for taking Claire's challenge to do at least one new thing next week to improve psychological safety in your work environment? 
If you do, leave a comment. Let us know what you did. I'm Paul Gisby of Talking Leaders. We help leaders to get heard, be understood, and to build trust. Goodbye.